Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. It is February 15th. And I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic where we take you behind the headlines to explain how Vermont and the nation really work. And to do that, we talk with guests in Vermont and around the country of all kinds with different points of view. Our goal, as always, is exploration and insight. We take your calls at 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We're talking today about mental health, and then in the second hour, electoral politics. We'll talk with exec- the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, which serves young people in Burlington and up in Franklin County as well. And in the second hour, we'll talk with uh, the new slate of graduates from the Emerge Vermont program, a program, a very highly successful program that trains women to run for office and has had a meaningful impact on who runs the Vermont legislature these days. So we'll get into that. Uh, but uh, we're, we're, on the mental health front, I, the reason we're talking to Mark Redman is I was taken aback last week when I read about Montpelier uh, school superintendent saying that basically schools are creating their own uh, mental health units even though they are ill-prepared to do so. Uh, so uh, we'll get into that. Uh, but first, some headlines. Uh, Phil Scott says that the uh, – Governor Phil Scott uh, says that there is a revival of a uh, sort of a power line project, a $1.2 billion power line project to carry electricity underneath Lake Champlain. Uh, the line would connect southern New England to hydro and wind power electricity from Quebec. Uh, BT Digger quotes the governor as saying that the project has legs again. That comes out of uh, the National Governors Association winter meeting in D.C. last week. And uh, this Scott says, now this may be a bit of a blast from the past for some of you, but we had a lengthy discussion about TDI, which is the name of the power project. We heavily promoted this in my first term and would have used the revenue for Lake Champlain cleanup, but unfortunately, Massachusetts decided to go in a different direction. Apparently, that project is still uh, is back on the board. Um, and the, the, basically, it's a it's an effort to build an electricity superhighway from the Hydro Quebec hydroelectric dams way up north uh, down to southern uh, New England, where most of the people are using all that electricity. As we electrify our grid, drive electric cars, and change from oil and gas heat to electric heat, um, power projects like this are going to be coming. Fast and furious. So uh, we'll see where that goes. That is a that is a massive, massive project, and the idea that you'd take it under the lake. You know, some people say, "Oh, that could be a massive uh, pro- environmental problem." 
On the other hand, we've been laying cable underwater for generations. So we'll see how that goes. Um, in other news, the Vermont State Housing Authority has launched the Landlord Relief Program. Uh, with help from the Department of Children and Families, landlords who apply can receive funding up to 10000 per unit to hold units for up to two months while they work with providers that offer housing vouchers. Recipients can use the funds for any necessary work to bring units up to health and safety codes. This is an effort to build and renovate housing as fast as we possibly can because housing is a massive, massive issue. Um, you've read about it. You've heard about it. So that from from all sorts of new dollars uh, flowing through the Vermont Housing Conservation Board to nonprofit housing developers to this landlord landlord relief program, um, we will. You're going to see a lot of state dollars going to housing, and you're going to start seeing a lot of new uh, housing built and renovated. I would add. That there is a, a major part of this is local zoning and Act 250. So if you, if the legislature and the governor have decided that they want to build a lot more affordable housing, and there seems to be a consensus that they do, uh, you have to get that permitted. And right now, uh, in order to do that, you have to get two kinds of permits, a local zoning permit, and an Act 250 permit under the state law. There's a bill in the legislature that has attracted a lot of attention that would ex- that would do away with the need to get an Act 250 permit if it is if the project is happening in a designated downtown in um, uh, and a downtown that has. Uh, robust and legitimate zoning ordinances that reflect the same values and the same criteria as Act 250. Um, so housing developers uh, and others have said that the Act 250 hurdle slows down the process and makes building these affordable units more expensive. So if we take out uh, the Act 250 permit and we just give a once-over to projects, uh, we can build them faster, more efficiently, and cheaper. Uh, the last thing I would do bef- say before we get to the break is, um, have you noticed what's going on with Vermont sheriff's departments? Uh, there is a host of allegations of misconduct, unusual financial activity. Uh, two sheriffs face criminal charges. The legislature is considering a constitutional amendment. Uh, to deal with it, uh, some lawmakers are also considering a bill that would bar sheriffs from pocketing fees off private contracts. Sounds sounds kind of normal um, to to be concerned about such practices. Uh, this is this is sort of sweeping the state, and I don't know much about it. And we will have a we will have a show about it in which we. Uh, Talk to the sheriffs and others uh, in that system about what it, what the heck is going on. Um, so uh, those are the headlines. Uh, you'll oh, you, on a national scale, you'll notice that former Louisiana Governor Nikki Haley has announced that she is going to run for president. Now that throws the presidential 
politics into a tizzy. Uh, Nikki Haley is a woman of color. She is a Republican and there's no doubt about it. She's trying to move on from Donald Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida is doing the same thing. And, uh, so, so interesting about the evolution of the Republican Party and where it's going, both in Vermont and nationally. And, you know, if you just wait long enough, you the system begins to spit out uh, alternatives to what we thought would be uh, other candidates. And Nikki Haley is is uh, to many is an attractive candidate. Uh, in the Republican Party. She is not a dogmatic right-wing conservative. Uh, she, she, co- she cozied up to the Trump line, uh, while serving as his UN ambassador. However, she, as governor of Louisiana, uh, was not doctrinaire, uh, right-wing conservative. So, um, the, the Republican presidential nomination has now been thrown up into the air. And uh, Donald Trump's going to have to work for it, it seems to me. Um, will he back off and say, "Forget it, I'm tired. I'm just going to, I'm just going to pack up my bags and stay down here in Mar-a-Lago," or is he going to want to get out on the road uh, and go through a third presidential campaign? Prediction: I think he'll do it, uh, but it's going to be harder work this time. So we're going to take a break. And uh, we'll be back uh, to start our discussion about mental health with Mark Redman at uh, at uh, Spectrum. And uh, you're listening. It's Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio. As I said earlier on the show, I was taken aback when I read from school officials in Montpelier that there is a mental health crisis among students and that schools are basically creating their own mental health units to deal with the stresses on students, this despite not having the expertise or the money to tackle these issues. So... To unpack that today, we welcome the Executive Director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Mark Redmond, to walk us through this. Welcome to the show. Hello, Mr. Ellis. How are you? Good. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks for having me on today. <laughs> My pleasure. Mark has been Spectrum's Executive Director, wait for it, since 2003. That's right. I still consider myself new, Kevin. You know? In addition, he is the author of The Goodness Within, Reaching Out to Troubled Teens with Love and Compassion, and called a memoir, which I have read. He is also the, oh, probably the founder uh, and the the uh, boss of, 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 a, of a sleep out where he and other famous people uh, sleep outside uh, and raise money uh, for Spectrum and uh, that's a you, you probably see him promoting that. Okay, Mark. Yeah. Um, 
I, I read that the superintendent of uh, Montpelier High School said we're basically creating a mash unit at schools for mental health. Mm. What is going on here? Uh, here's my really question that should animate our whole discussion, which is, is this something that has always existed in our society and we just ignored it or swept it under the rug? Or is this so, is something new happening out there? I think there is something new. I think it's been there, Kevin, and I think it's it's been growing. I think the pandemic exacerbated it, you know. But if you look at a lot of the statistics, even at Spectrum, but even nationally, it was growing even before. A lot of people blame it on the pandemic, you know. Right. But the number of youth struggling with mental health issues was growing even before that. So Spectrum does a lot of different things, right? We're known for, you know, our work with homeless youth. We have a drop-in center in Burlington, drop-in center in St. Albans. We have 26 beds for homeless youth in Burlington. We have three beds for homeless youth. But we've also done for years, even before I got there 20 years ago, mental health counseling. So we had, I would say, two or three years ago, we probably had six licensed mental health counselors on staff. And now we're up to about 12. In fact, we're recruiting more because of the need, you know. So right now we have a waiting list, which I hate. Can you imagine if you had a son or a daughter who was suffering from an eating disorder or uh, substance abuse disorder or anxiety disorder and said, oh, we'll put you on a waiting list. I hate doing that. But it's the, the more staff we hire, Kevin, it's just the number keeps growing. And it's not just Spectrum. Howard Center's got a long waiting list, too. They all do. So it was growing before the pandemic. Now, why is it growing? There are, you know, if you Google that, you're probably going to pull up 50 different articles, you know. Right. And, and I try and read them all. And I ask on my own counselors, what's going on, you know. And I think I think a lot of things, it's the instability in society. I mean, what did we have Yesterday, another school shooting, this time at uh, Michigan State, right? So, I mean, when you and I were growing up in high school, do you remember? I don't remember hearing about these things. Do you? No. I mean, no. No. So there's a whole level of violence going on that's got to be working its way into the at least the subconscious of a lot of these youth. So there's that. And then I think the pandemic just brought along social isolation. We're not meant to be isolated. Kids aren't meant to be isolated. So that added to it. And then you, we cannot discount social media, Kevin. Did you see that the entire school system in the state of Washington is suing big tech right now? Yeah. Because, you know, w- which is located. A lot of them are located in Washington, right? Microsoft, all them. And their, their case will be interesting to see if they succeed in the cases. Hey, you know, you we have these mental health problems in our schools and social media is behind a lot of it and you the social media companies inability to police yourselves is what's drawing a lot of this. So I think we have kids on screens, they're not getting enough sleep. And I talked to a principal last week, Kevin, who said to me, "Boy, oh boy, uh, uh, of a high school, he said if I could join that lawsuit, I'd join it tomorrow because I can't tell you how social media is really hurting the culture of our school, the bullying and the outing of kids. It's just turning our school upside down. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's also become a, um, an accelerant for all these bad trends. 
especially for girls um, who want to spend their time on Instagram posing in, uh, you know, clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. It's, yeah, so it's, there's obviously a First Amendment issue there, but right. I, for the life of me, I cannot understand why the federal government is not more active on the front, on that front with uh, cracking down on Facebook um, and others for yeah. for allowing this uh, to go sort of un you know unregulated. Yeah, it's unregulated. It's unchecked. I'm not sure exactly how to regulate it. And you're right. How you how you get around the First Amendment issues, you know? But there's no doubt it is really, really, you know, uh, harming so many children. And you're right. We're seeing principals retire early. <laughs> Teachers retire. You know, they just we saw the story in Vermont Digger, right? Um, I know you were affiliated with them and maybe you still are. But, you know, about I think it was in Bennington, right? The number of times the police have been called yeah. to deal with student disruptions, you know? So anyway... It's it's uh, spectrum plays a role, you know. We just feel morally obligated. We don't have to do it, but we want to do it. And you know, I get call. It's heartbreaking, Kevin. I get calls from parents, and I'm not even a mental health counselor, and they call me because they know me. And these are, you know, most of the family. A lot of the families of kids we work with, you know, mom and dad have real problems. Kids have been in foster care, but I'm talking about middle class families. Upper middle class family, you know, wealthy family, yeah. you know, yeah. whose kids are struggling with depression or with eating disorders or cutting themselves, you know. So it's really heartbreaking. Um, a woman walked in the other day and made a nice donation and uh, said, yeah, this would have been my son's birthday. Every year I, I donate money to the spectrum. It would have been my son's birthday. But he died of an overdose two years ago, you know. And I just wish he had found his way to Spectrum. It's it's really really sad. So, Mark, so, uh, let's let's talk about Spectrum and what it is yeah. that you do because you've been around forever. You 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 occupy a big place in this mental health counseling services universe. There's the Howard Center. There's Lund. Yeah. This can get confusing to the the listener, not pay, the the non political junkies out there, right? Uh, Tell us where you exist in the universe. So Howard Center, you know, there are designated agencies for every county. So those are the main players. You know, right. Howard Center does a lot of different things. I give them. We owe a lot to Howard Center. You know, I don't criticize Howard Center at all. They have right. a tremendous amount of responsibility. You know, they over over, over a thousand employees. You know, they are legally responsible for our county. So I give them a lot of credit to, for the work that we're doing. And in and, and in and in central Vermont, from, in central Vermont, that would be Washington County Mental Health. Correct, correct. Then you have HCRS and another part. So they they kind of divided the state up. You know? Yeah. Okay. And then there are other players like Northeast Family Institute NFI. They're what's called a specialized service agency. They play a role. And then right, and then there are the smaller Lund does mental health you know counseling for their population. There's, and then there's. Private practitioners, Otter Creek, you know, Dr. David Fassler, who runs Otter Creek, you know, so it's kind of, to the lay person, it's, it's very confusing. Can you imagine being a parent, you know, whose kid is suffering from it, whatever, an eating yeah. disorder and trying to navigate this thing? It, it can be very confusing. But I just know everybody is, is booked right now, you know, to try and find a, a counselor is really, really difficult. So... 
you know, we are one of the players, and we really specialize in, in the adolescents, you know. So we'll, we'll go as young as 13 or 14, really up until the 20s. I would say our sweet spot, Kevin, is that, like, 18, 19, 20, you know, because that's when a lot of things end for kids. Kids can opt out of foster care at 18. Uh, they are often sadly discharged from the children's mental health system because now they're 18 and they don't have the right diagnosis or the right IQ score to get into the adult system. So we pick up a lot of those kids, too. So that's kind of our niche, you know, looking looking at that group. That being said, you know, I, I do see 14 and 15-year-olds and even 25-year-olds walking into our our place. We're, we're growing so much, Kevin. We finally... You've been to our building on Elmwood Avenue. I'm out of space. We're renovating as we speak. We bought a floor of a building on Pine Street. Two people, somebody donated 400000 Somebody donated a million dollars to us. So we bought cash, a floor of a building. So now we're going to have our mental health counselors in one floor with a receptionist, nice waiting area. So that'll be, we're renovating that now. We'll be up and running in a few months. But we literally ran out of space. For our counselors, that's how much the demand is. And and you also operate a a health center and a drop-in center on Pearl Street, right? Yes. So the drop-in center, and we've created a second one in St. Albans two years ago. So the drop-in center is like low barrier. Come on, we don't need your Social Security number. We don't need your Medicaid number. We don't even need your name, but we'd like to know your name. You can come in anytime, have a free hot lunch, free hot dinner, take a shower, Ton of donated clothes that we that we give out. Uh, use the computers. Do your laundry. It's a great like entry place, you know, for young people to come in. A lot of these kids have been through a million different systems. They haven't been treated well by adults. We have very young staff who work there. And right next to it, community health center, which is what's called the FQHC, federally qualified health center. Their big operation is on Riverside Avenue. They opened up right in our state a satellite clinic for our youth. So it's free health care for all of the kids who live in our shelters, our residences come to drop it, which is fantastic. I give community health centers so much credit for doing that. And then in St. Albans, we opened up a drop-in center in St. Albans. I had two youth, two staff working with youth in foster care up there, and they said to me, Mark, we need a drop-in center and housing there are homeless youth in St. Albans, you know, kids living in the woods, whatever. Yeah. So a big donation came through. We opened that up almost two years ago. I wrote a federal, we wrote a federal grant application, Kevin, and they had to estimate how many youth. So eh, maybe we'll see 80 kids. We're up to 400 kids, uh, Kevin. Let's, let's pick that up after the break. Uh, let's go to the phones. John in Chelsea, you are on the line with Mark Redman. How are you? Hey there, uh, Kevin and Mark. How are you today? Good. Good. Uh, Kevin, you, you may not remember me, but our kids were about the same age, uh, uh, the Cesari kids. We, we raised our kids kind of together in Chelsea. <laughs> you know, whenever, yeah. I see, whenever I see somebody from Chelsea's calling, I guarantee you I know who they are. <laughs> How are you? Um, pretty good. Hey, um, great topic. Uh, just for you two guys, I, I did work at Brookhaven, and I also worked at Return House. So beyond raising three kids, um, you know, I, I've worked in the system a little bit. Um, and, and what a tough challenge. Um, uh, kudos to Mark for, for sticking it out and offering so much help. Uh, but the, the one point I want to make is um, I, think we're, I think we're shorting the parents. 
I think we're, we're not giving the parents enough tools to help their kids. Um, Kevin may not remember this, but our family was probably the strictest family in Chelsea, raising our kids in terms of movies and video games, computer time. Um, and my kids were barely into college, and they started thanking us for that, for that uh, hands-on parenting um, and setting the limits. And I'd like to hear from Mark if, if, if they work with the parents. Um, I mean, I can't imagine having a middle schooler or younger and allowing them to use their phone after bedtime. I mean, I just, I can't imagine that. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great, great question. Uh, John, thanks for the call and great to hear your voice. Mark, parents. Yeah, we definitely do work with the parents when we can. You know, uh, we have middle class families, upper class, you know, low income, all families and we'll definitely work with the parents and you're right setting limits is huge it's huge it's teaching parents how to set limits unfortunately you know especially the homeless youth who come to us uh the parents could be missing or one of the parents is in prison or one of them is in rehab you know and they've been in and out of a million different foster homes, so it's much, much more difficult to work with the parents of, of that population. Well, and if, yeah, and I'll, ahead, Kev, yeah. I'll tell you a quick story. I mean, John will know this. When when we lived in Chelsea, there was a. This is how how the society has accelerated, uh, Mark. Where there was a video store in Chelsea, where you know my kids would go in there to rent, you know, some ridiculous Disney video for the 55th time. And the guy behind the counter, you know, he lived out back. He was a guy we knew. He was a friend. He looked after the kids. It was, you know, it was Mayberry RFD. (laughs) And they checked out the video and put it on the tab, and we'd pay the tab later, and we'd watch, oh, God, I don't know, Little Mermaid for the 50th time or Wind in the Willows. That's not the society we're living in now, is it? No. 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 It's so hard. Every every kid's got a phone. I like John's idea, you know, no phones after a certain amount of hours, you know. But, God, think, Kevin, they just have to click, 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 and they can be on the most horrendous, violent, sexually explicit, you know, really nasty stuff, you yeah. know, in seconds. So, you know... I agree. John is right. Any kind of limits you can do, but it has grown. You're right. Back then, you could monitor what the video they were bringing in. It's just become increasingly difficult. Not that we shouldn't try, right? Not that we shouldn't try. You know, I remember my kid was in middle school. I'd be like, okay, the phone's coming in here. Give me the phone. It's nine o'clock. You're going to bed, whatever. We'll take the phone, so he's not under the cover. They're looking at something. Yeah, so and you're right. And and I I I hear what John is saying too about parents that I don't think parents are given the tools as well. I think we're you know look, I'm a First Amendment guy, I'm mm. a political guy, raised on the Constitution, and it's against my very upbringing to try to clamp down on the speech rights of any mm-hmm. institution in the communication business. But right. it's pretty hard to avoid the conclusion that Facebook, Instagram, and and deeper, deeper down in the dark web are a threat mm-hmm. to the very fabric of the society. Right, right. But how do we regulate it, Kat? Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about that. We can all agree it needs, it's just, it's really a, having a deleterious effect 
on our children, our society. It's how do we get the toothpaste back in the bottle, right? Well, Fred from Newberry is on the line, and he is going to explain exactly how we deal with this. Go ahead, Fred. (laughs) Come on. You're making me bigger than I am. What's the answer? I don't know what the answer is. Uh, You know what? I mean, it's terrible. It, It really is terrible. And your guests, even said it's even more terrible than they ever thought it was. And here's why. You said kids are living in the woods. I tell you what, why don't you go out in the woods and try to live and see how how long you can live in the woods. It's impossible to live in the woods without support. You have to have support to live in the woods. I I did a Transamerica trip, and my wife and I lived in the woods five days a week. But we had support, tons of support. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the Postal Service, we couldn't do it. Yeah. So, you know, there you go. Kids don't live in the woods. They can't. You can't live in the woods unless you have support. Try it. Yeah, well, Fred, thanks for the call. Mark, here's a... I agree. I agree, Fred. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Mark, here's a question. Uh, If you were were governor for a day or a year, uh, is this a a case of... I mean... You exist, as do many providers, at the bottom of a funnel, and it seems that we pour all of our society's ills into the funnel, and out it comes out the out the bottom, and we ask you to deal with it. I wonder if you could go up to the top of the funnel and be dictator for a day. How would we rebuild? Are we trying to rebuild the system in which you operate, or are we trying to build society, rebuild society as a whole? I mean, I think we need to do both. I will give Governor Scott credit. I went in to see him in 2017, and Al Bay was working for the governor then. Yep. Because, you know, if people are suffering from severe and persistent mental illness, they go to the 25-bed facility in Berlin, and then if they get better, they move them down to the two FEMA trailers welded together in Middlesex surrounded by barbed wire. Right. And, you know, I went to see the governor. Al got me in to see him, and Judge Chris Rice went with me. And we said, this is not tenable. This is really bad. This is disgusting, you know. And he said, I'm on it. And I went to the groundbreaking last fall, Kevin, and he turned to me and said, you know, promises kept. And we increased the number of beds from the seven beds in the FEMA trailers to 16 beds. And so it'll open, I think, in a couple of weeks. And it's really, it's trauma-informed. It's secure. People just can't walk off. So that's a step in the right direction. And where's that located? In the old wood side. Remember, we closed the antiquated wood side, uh, which was for use. And now they're trying to figure out what what to replace it with. But we closed the old wood side. And it's it's new. They left some of the structure up, the gym up. But it's geothermally heated. I took a tour of it recently with the Commissioner Emily Hawes, and it's a step in the right direction. So that's the kind of thing, you know, we need to continue to do. We need to be realistic. Now, a big problem we face, Kevin, and every is staffing. Staffing. You know, Howard Center's got 200 openings. They were on Channel 3 recently. We have trouble staffing. Our warming shelter about six years ago, Kevin, we said 16 beds is not enough, and, and the fellow called us right. You, nobody should be living in the woods, and we were giving out sleeping bags, which I'm embarrassed to say. So we opened up a warming shelter. We have 10 more beds in the winter. 
That should have been open November 1st. I couldn't find the staff. It finally opened about three weeks ago. So now I've got 10 more beds so kids don't freeze to death, and we don't have to hand out sleeping bags. So we we need to continue to build out the system, in my view. But the key is also staffing. It's hard as heck, you know, to, to find people. But we're, we are – we're doing it. We're, we opened up, and our drop-in center in Burlington will soon hopefully be open on weekends as well. Right now it's Monday to Friday, and I always say homeless kids don't take weekends off. So those are the kind of things we need to do. And, you know, here's what we've learned in St. Albans. When we opened in St. Albans, I thought, oh, we'll probably see, you know, like what we've got in Burlington, 18, 19, 20. You know who we've seen in St. Albans coming in? 14, 15, 16, 17. Why? Because in Burlington, thank God, we've got the Boys and Girls Club, King Street Center, Sarah Holbrook Center, YMCA. They don't have those resources in St. Albans. So we're kind of functioning, you know, as as all of those things. And, you know, I've got my eye. I've talked to Sue Minter and Barry. I'd love at some point for us to be in the city of Barry. Becca Ballin came by last summer when she was running for office. She saw everything we do. She said, oh, my gosh, we need this in Brattleboro. I'm sure they do. So anyway, those are in the back of my mind. These are all the plans that I have, you know. Okay. Mark, um I, I want to put on my political hat for a moment, and I'll put on my political conservative hat for a moment and say, and say, uh, as you said, it wasn't this way a long time ago when we were kids. We've created a permissive, entitled society where we don't require, uh, we don't prioritize hard work, and uh, these kids are the the, the damaged uh, victims of of parents who don't set rules and boundaries. I'm not I don't know if I believe that, but I think it's a point of view out there. <laughs> <laughs> it is a point of view. Um you know, at Spectrum, the, we we deal with young people. The thing is you say say this on the field. Meet people where they're at, you know. Some kids come in and they want a sandwich and they're hungry and they need to take a shower. And I'm like, that, that's fine. That's great. If that's what you need, you know? Yeah. But if kids start to come and they're coming regularly, we will pretty early on have the conversation. So do you have a job? Oh, you don't have a job. Well, that's good because we have job developers on staff and they are linked to all employers, city market, healthy living, PC construction, you know, movie theaters. We can help you find a job, you know? Right. Uh, and in fact, we even have our own business. We started a car detailing business. And I found out from the fellow who runs it yesterday, we have 10 kids up there working right now. Our kids are not, the kids we work with, Kevin, aren't very good traditionally at holding on to jobs. You know, they get into jobs and they quit or get fired pretty quickly. And when I asked my staff why, they said, well, they just didn't grow up with families. Where it was modeled how to show up on time, how to speak to a boss how to work as part of a team, you know, how to call out sick. They just didn't learn that. So we started our own business, the car detailing business. It's in Williston. And we have, we measure how long kids stay in, in jobs, and we've more than doubled the length of time that young people stay in jobs when they work for Detail Works or a social enterprise. And now we're following them after they leave us. How are they doing in those jobs? And we're finding out it sticks. The things, the soft skills they're learning there in Detail Works 
are sticking. There's a fellow who, he's now one of my bosses, Kevin. Five years ago, he was a homeless youth, came into our drop-in center for a sandwich, uh, lived in our shelter, moved to our apartments, worked at Detail Works. He now has his own place in Vermont. He has a full-time job. He's taking college courses at night, and I report to him. And five years ago, he was a homeless youth, you know? So, like, we are very much pro-work, <laughs> you know, pro-helping kids open bank accounts, pro-going back to school. Maybe you're not going to get a four-year degree. Not everybody needs to get a four-year degree, but you're going to need training in something. I love it when people say, oh, I want to work in HVAC. I want to be a plumber. Great. Great. You can make a really nice living doing that. So, you know, I see Spectrum as, you know, having those kind of values. We'll help people when they're down and out. But we also want to help them move ahead in life. You wrote uh, an op-ed piece in uh, VT Digger uh, some time back talking about the way we deal. And this is a huge issue. I mean, I'm I'll right. just the umbrella issue of... People don't want to walk through City Hall Park after dark anymore in Burlington. Uh, you, you know, we can talk about the police and the mayor. We're going to have the mayor on to talk about this. Oh, good. Uh, oh, yeah. He, Moreau's been on once. He's going to come on again. We're going to do a whole show on the police. But, but the, the issue, uh, you know, you talk about this, the, the, uh, approaching mentally Insta- unstable people on Church Street, for example, who are in crisis and they just shuttle in and out of the police station and nothing gets done uh, because we as a society uh, want to be compassionate and put them in, quote, the least restrictive environment. And you are calling for changes to that approach. I definitely believe in the least restrictive environment. It's funny. Remember when Mike Sherling was police chief? And I remember he said, this is going back 12 years. He goes, you know, back in the 1970s, we had a thousand people in the Vermont State Hospital in Waterbury. Yeah. And that was too many. Now we have 52 and that's not enough. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, I think that release restrictive is great. But if somebody is really dealing with a mental health issue and they are a danger to themselves or a danger to other people, as a civilized, responsible society, you know, I think we have the right and the duty to provide, you know, a place for those people. And it's an ugly term. Somebody's got to come up with a better term. But there is this term called involuntary commitment. And it's supposed to be used if somebody is really a danger to themselves or others. And you're right. I wrote a column because, you know, I finally had a point where we had a young person who was really dangerous to himself and others. We couldn't handle him at Spectrum. We sent him up to the ER, and they sent him right back out saying he's fine. Well, he's not fine. You know, I actually called the psychiatrist on and said, I can't believe you're saying this person is fine. Now, it's easy to blame the hospital, Kevin. Sure. Um, But, I, you know, I've talked to – I remember Dr. Leffler said to me, I have 53 rooms in the CR, Mark, and right now 29 of them are occupied by psychiatric patients and I technically only have two psychiatric rooms in the ER. So it's a massive failure of our mental health system. So they're stacked up. You know, this is when COVID was going on. So uh, Brattleboro Retreat only had about half their capacity. So, and then there's the staffing thing. 
So it's easy to get mad in the hospital. On the other hand, I think they're doing as as well as they can, you know? Yeah. But I think we need to look at, I remember saying to the psychiatrist, do we have the same laws on the books about danger to self as others? As New Hampshire, as Massachusetts, he goes, we have the exact same laws. It's how we interpret them, you know? Yeah. And, and I said, well, I don't think we're interpreting right. There are people, Kevin, in the mental health advocacy community who disagree with me. They might start calling in right now. Those are good people. They do good work. But on this particular issue, I think we re, we need to look at, you know, look at this terrible, terrible trial that it just took place. Now they're sentencing this Mr. Gorong, who was released from the state, from the hospital and killed his wife and put an axe in his wife's head. You know, I mean, we can see so many examples. So I don't know. That's why I wrote that editorial. I got quite a reaction to, to it, you know. But, uh, okay, so this is falling on the mayor. I'm sure uh, I'd be curious to see what the mayor says. I think he would agree too. Well, okay, now I'm going to put on my average citizen hat on and say I want to blame somebody for this, uh, Mark. It wasn't this way when I was young. Uh, right. Who am I blaming? You, the Howard Center, the governor, the mayor, the police, uh, social media, Facebook. Who am I blaming? What what's what does society need to go after to fix this problem? I don't know. It's funny. I don't. Th- I, I hear what you're saying about blame. I'm more looking. I'm more looking at it from the solution side. Like, yeah. What do we need to get out of this? Isn't working. You're right. You can go into and you. I'm sure you'll ask the mayor about City Hall Park, which is a really sad situation, right? Yeah. We've created this beautiful park, and it's really not a good situation at all. So, what do we need? You know, I believe. I believe we need more beds. You know, I believe yeah. we need community support. That's what all of the argument. Oh, no, no, Mark, we need community support. I'm like, we do need community support, but we also need beds. Even if somebody it temporarily needs to be involuntarily committed so we can get them on the right meds, so we can get them the support they need, they may not need to stay in a, in a confined setting forever. I don't want that. Nobody wants that. Right. But, you know, that's why I'm so glad we, create, we created the 16 beds in in the old wood side, you know, so that should help the problem. I think the retreat is starting to open up more beds, but we need safe, secure places where people can can go. Kevin, the letters and emails I get from parents whose kids turn eighteen and they think the CIA has put a chip in their brain, you know, yeah. and the parents have no say at all now that they're adults. And I really feel for these parents; they're just terrified. One woman had to hire a private detective. She heard a rumor her son was living on the streets in Washington, D.C. She finally, they found him wandering on I-91 in the middle of the highway in a blizzard. It's a miracle the kid wasn't killed. So I feel for these parents, too. Well, it is... uh Boy, that's it's a complicated uh, subject. I know the legislature talks about it all the time. Uh, There's the other issue, which is, well, and this doesn't seem to break down in a sort of Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative uh, breakdown. It's more it's it's a different kind of maybe it's older generation versus new, but clearly there's not enough money in the system. That's true. Yeah. That's true. We have grossly underfunded in the you know, Howard Center. And put, in fact, you know, I was on a with legislators recently, and I said, "You gave Howard Center an eight percent increase last year. Good for you. 
They deserve it. I hope they get more this year. Yeah. You know who else deserves it? Spectrum. Yeah. Cos. Lund. We've been level funded year after year after year. When inflation was 2%, that was bad enough. But now that it's 8%, we're really facing this point where, like, how do we pay people, you know, and pay the bills and pay for oil and heating, you know? We need help, too. We're doing the work of the state. So if we have a state contract. That being said, people are really generous to Spectrum. We, we raise a lot more philanthropic dollars than most nonprofits. People are really generous, including you. Mark, I got to go. And, uh, oh, what is it? Is it? What time is it? It's 10 o'clock. Oh, 10 o'clock. Oh Mark Redmond, Spectrum there. Youth and Family Services. Thanks for joining us. We love you. We love you, too, Kevin. Thanks okay. For on, buddy. It's Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And we are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer live radio. Now, remember, these shows become podcasts. You can listen to your, on your own time. So uh, if you miss me live, just click on the podcast button at RadioVermont.com. Now, you can call in at 244-1777. Email me at VTViewpoint at RadioVermont.com. Recently, an organization called Emerge Vermont announced that 22 women who have trained with the organization are running for local office on town meeting day in March. Fourteen of those candidates are alumni of the Signature Training Program and eight have participated in other campaign trainings offered by Emerge. And, of course, Emerge is the organization founded in 2013 by former Governor Madeline Cunin to train women to run for office. And as someone who spends a fair amount of time around the Vermont legislature, it is pretty clear the impact that Emerge has had since Governor Cunin founded the organization. I would just point out that the chairs of uh, the key money committees, appropriations, finance, ways and means, uh, in the legislature are run by women. Several are Emerge graduates. The Speaker of the House, Jill Krawinski, is an Emerge graduate and many, many more. And we are joined to talk more about this uh, slate of candidates by Emerge Executive Director Elaine Haney and candidate for re-election to the Bakersfield Select Board, Brenda Churchill. Welcome both of you to the show. Good morning, Kevin. Great to talk to you. <laughs> Hi, Kevin. Good to be here. Brenda, I'm really great, glad to have you on the show because my sister met her husband on a commune in Bakersfield in 19... Oh, late night, mid 1970s. After graduating from Middlebury, she found her way up to Bakersfield along with Francine Chittenden and Eric Chittenden from the Cold Hollow Cider Mill. But uh, that dates her. But uh, fond memories of going up to Bakersfield to see them. I'm glad to hear that, Kevin. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, at some point, Elaine, uh, the entire legislature is going to be run by women. Um, hey, that sounds like a great plan. You, I, I'm not sure I can think of a nonprofit uh, new. I mean, I think of you as new, but 2013 uh, that's had this kind of impact. I don't think it gets talked about or written about, but uh, the legislature is 
in large part now run by women, many of them are eMERGE graduates. So let's talk about that. Well, you're quite right, Kevin. Um, the women, the, the committees that are um, in charge of the money uh, this year are in this session are all run by women. And um, Ways and Means in the House is run by Emily Kornheiser, the chair, and she is a graduate of Emerge Vermont. Um, there are 42 Emerge grads in the State House right now, and um, there are 80 women in the State House right now, and that's the highest number ever. Uh, 44.4% of the state house is women, and that's the highest percentage ever. And um, I think we can attribute that to attribute it to the women who have trained in our program and have been focused on getting in those seats and working on issues that are super important to women and families, like childcare and mental health and hunger. So um, I think it's a wonderful trend and. My goal and our organization's goal is to keep going and increase that number as much as possible. Brenda Churchill, uh, you are running, uh, my notes say, f- at, for re-election to the Bakersfield Select Board. Is that right? That's correct. And that's a three-member board? Uh, it is a five-member board with varying terms. Uh, my first term, uh, just concluding now uh, at town meeting, would be my uh, be a two-year term, and I'm running for a three-year term this time. And do you classify yourself as a Democrat or a Republican? Um, with respect to uh, the select board, we're very nonpartisan. Right. Um, but within the context of all the other work that I do, I'm definitely a Democrat. Got it. How are the politics up there these days? I mean, Bakersfield is way up north. Uh, you know, the assumption would be that it is a uh, rural and therefore somewhat conservative place. But uh, you found a home on the select board. How, how does how do the politics work up there? Well, um, you have to understand that, that most people are concerned about uh, some very basic things here, and one of them being roads. Yeah. Understanding the nature of the dirt roads that are are the majority of, of ways to get around in our town. Uh, we also have infrastructure with uh, broadband, which I think is very critical. And uh, that keeps people connected and, and allows, as we found out during COVID, uh, many people to telecommute uh, to work. Um, conservative, yes. Uh, I would have to say that the population uh, tends to lean heavily towards, um, uh, you know, a demographic that is more traditionally uh, white male and that uh, definitely uh, needs to um, uh, needs to be shown ways to get things done differently. And hopefully I've been able to do that up here. Um, I see that I'm not going to read the entire list, Elaine, of uh, people running for office. I do recognize M.L. Campbell from from uh, Barry City Council, who I uh, sometimes see on an exercise bike next to me. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it... it, it uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead in, in, you know, you said 45% of the legislature is now women. Um, mm-hmm. at some point, uh, you, you, does your success outweigh, uh, you know, do you get ahead of yourself? You know, what, what, what happens when 100% of the legislature is, uh, uh, female? You know? The same, well, the same thing that would happen, that happens when the legislature is 100% men. Yeah. We run against we run against each other. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. That's democracy. Right. And 
for the entirety of the history of Vermont and our country, it has been run by majority or entirely men. And we have gotten as far as we have that way, but now women are very eager to be more represented in those decision-making bodies. And so we are trying to normalize women running for office, and we're trying to normalize women running against each other. It's an okay thing for that to happen. I was just, our first guest was, uh, speaking of a, a system built by men, uh, we were just talking to Mark Redver, Redmond from Spectrum uh, Youth mm. and Family Services about the almost complete breakdown of the mental health system, especially for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading about school superintendents and principals talking about setting up, basically setting up mash mental health units in their schools, despite not having the money or the expertise. Mark is saying that the system is broken. Well, this system was built by men, and I wonder whether or not uh, women coming to this problem is going to bring it a new angle and a new perspective. I think it will. And that's probably because women in general tend to be more collaborative leaders. They tend to be very willing to reach across the aisle to make solutions come together. And they are good at compromising. I think that there's also different perspectives. A lot of women are moms. Um, a lot of women also are, you know, have the perspective of being in a marginalized community. And so they are very tuned in to the needs of the community in ways that men perhaps aren't. Or not to say that men are insensitive or anything like that. It's just that the focus of women has been on community services, things like health care, hunger, mental health, child care, all the things that make families run. And those perspectives just have not been at the table. And I think with those new perspectives there in greater number, decisions at the policy level will change things the way we the way we do things. We'll solve problems differently and maybe we'll solve more problems and solve them more rapidly with more women at the table and more people from more marginalized communities. Brenda Churchill, can you tell us about going through the uh, the, the program? at Emerge, what is it like? Is it scary? Is it easy? Is it expensive? Uh, Tell us your experience. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I did the program back when Christine Hallquist was running for governor, and I got um, into the class to help support her uh, run for that position. And it was um, what we call a boot camp. It's a little bit different than the premier version, which stretches over uh, weeks and months, but was done in a very compressed uh, weekend format, and it gave me a huge uh, leg up on anybody who has never had uh, campaign training, like making phone calls, like doing door knocking, like just coming up with a stump speech. All these things are done at a much longer basis in the premier training, but in a boot camp, they want to get us out in the field uh, with the right amount of knowledge to get uh, the job done, and it's, it was very helpful. Was it difficult? Yeah, making some phone calls for money collection uh, and, and donations is probably the hardest part, but uh, I, I think it was so valuable, uh, even just the two-day program. Um, we're going to take a break, but I want to come back and keep talking about that because uh, you're right. It is... It is so hard for first-time candidates to get on the phone and ask people for money uh, to pay for brochures and yard signs and 
all the all the other stuff. So, Brenda, before the break, we were talking about what it takes to run. Um, take us back to when you ran as a first time candidate. What was it like? Was how deep was the pit in your stomach? Uh, that's that's a good way to put it. Um, it was pretty big. I mean, a lot of yourself goes into campaigning. A lot of who you are uh, and being out there uh, goes into your presentation and getting out to talk to people. Um, just circulating through the neighborhood uh, was uh, a mental challenge, and um, you know it gets easier the more you do. Uh, same thing with the with the fundraising. Uh, so, using the phone, using electronic tools, using uh, face-to-face conversations where public and people meet, um, all these things uh, come with the, the training and, and the understanding that you're not alone. Uh, we have such a great team of folks who encourage uh, me, encouraged me, and, and moved me to do things that I, I wasn't comfortable doing. Elaine Haney, can you talk to us about um, how Emerge interacts with the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. These are functions that used to be provided by the party system. And it seems that uh, Governor Kunin and now you are uh, have created a whole new arm, a whole new world of political organizing and electoral training. I, yes, that's true. We have um, emphasized training women Democrats in particular. The Democratic Party is, I I consider them to be a partner organization to what we do, and they consider us to be partners as well, in that we are both supporting Democratic candidates. And a lot of the women who come through our program are folks that are not on the radar of the Vermont Democratic Party because they are investigating whether they want to run or they're running for local office, which is not necessarily something that the VDP has paid a ton of attention to in the past, although they're definitely focusing on municipal races more now. Um, we don't partner really with the Republican Party or, or the Progressive Party. We are strictly a Democratic organization. But, um, you know, I think statewide parties have go, have ups and downs in terms of their ability to provide services for candidates. Um, sometimes it's budgetary, sometimes it's capacity, but um, the VDP is has always been very supportive of all of our candidates. Other trainings are out there. Um, the Democratic National Training Committee offers webinars online. Um, there's organizations like Run for Something and Emily's List that also provide training for women. But Emerge really specifically focuses on Democratic women, and we do it in real time, uh, in person as often as possible. COVID has changed that and has made us become a more hybrid training entity. But we focus on having women in the classroom talking about the things they need to know to run for office, the real nitty-gritty nuts-and-bolts stuff, um, campaign math and how to fundraise and how to make sure you're paying attention to campaign compliance and all those things that aren't necessarily going to be covered in online courses offered at the national level. Yes, and you are part of something called Emerge America. Could you talk about how that works? Absolutely. Emerge America is our umbrella organization, and there are 27 affiliates across the country. And so Vermont is an affiliate of Emerge America. And we are all independently run on the ground, but we have support 
from the national organization in terms of, um, for example, uh, I report to the um, Emerge America uh, organization. They handle our our reporting. They handle our financial stuff. They handle um, they provide me with support in terms of preparing the curriculum for the classes, but. Emerge Vermont itself is is what I work on. So I have it's a Vermont specific organization from from me down. Uh, Br- Brenda Churchill, I, I want to go to a very touchy issue, and that is increasingly it is difficult to serve because we seem to have lost our ability to have uh, comment and debate and disagree in a civil way. Um, I think it's easy to blame Trump, but uh, social media has seemingly unloose, uh, uh, released the demons in so many of us. And uh, more and more people are saying that it is uh, difficult to serve, it's abusive to serve, and in fact sometimes endangers your physical safety. Can you address that? Yeah, thanks, uh, Kevin. And I, I would only disagree in part that the previous administration uh, was responsible, but it's a confluence of, of things, including social media. Uh, we had just came through a pandemic, which was very isolation, isolating people, and an administration that was less than favorable to uh, women and minorities. I, I think these things have um, always been under the surface and. With all of these things happening, it just brought it out and made it easier for people to to be, um, uh, I'm going to use a polite, more outspoken. Right. Um, from the standpoint of what's happening on a national level, uh, it's unprecedented. Uh, there's people who are called out. There are people who are uh, abused and threatened uh, everywhere. I think Vermont can see that. And I think the return to a more civil way of doing government actually is going to take place in March. We get to go back to town meeting. We get to have our meetings in person. We get to see each other and talk to people. I think in that way, Vermont is a different, uh, a little bit different than the national trends. Uh, Certainly we have our issues, but they're easily identified like our high school sports issues. We can see what's happening. We see it and we hear it. And uh, this is all just a, you know, end ending of something that I think was very hard for people in Vermont. Yeah, it's it's and I am literally getting calls about this and uh, people asking me to uh, do an sh- entire show on it, which we will do. Um, it's uh, you know, it, it's public servants are not paid well. Uh, it's often volunteer if you're serving on a local planning commission. Um, and people sometimes feel that their physical safety is endangered, and uh, that can only mean that fewer and few, fewer people are going to run for these offices, and yet you did. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, I think it was a lot of the energy that I took out of the Hallquist campaign, uh, and, of course, uh, I'm going to give a shout-out to Senator Ruth Hardy, who asked me to be part of Emerge uh, in a, in a uh, board capacity, and of course, that led to some other things, and we enjoyed uh, Speaker uh, and Representative Jill Krowinski uh, taking uh, over after Ruth Hardy, uh, and now Elaine Haney, which uh, really is a, a wonderful progression and examples of how people can get through all of the negativity and succeed. And, and these examples, these women are, 
are such role models and such great people to follow. Um, I'm I'm here for the duration. I'm, uh, whether I get elected or not, I'm still part of uh, part of this emerge uh, organization. And yet, it is. Uh, and I know you do it for the big paycheck. Um, <laughs> Thanks. This is when from the select board all the way up to the legislature. These are not well paid jobs. Elaine Haney, do you? see reluctance by women to run for these offices because they can't manage uh, the financial part of it or they it's just too much of a burden. I notice, and the name is escaping me, but the member of the House who resigned recently uh, because she just couldn't balance all the, the professional, the legislative, and the family uh, burdens. Right. Right. That was Representative Kate Donnelly, who was (laughs) representing a district in Lamoille County and who is much missed at the State House. And she's also uh, an alum of Emerge Vermont. Um, I would say that the paltry pay that legislators receive and and select board members, even less, and school board members, um, that is absolutely a piece of it. But the difference between select board and school board members and legislators is that legislators are doing full-time work from May to, from January to May, and then they're also doing a lot of work over the summer and into the fall, and they're getting paid, I don't know, a dollar an hour it works out to. It's very, very low, and they don't receive health care coverage either. And so <clears throat> that is one big aspect of what keeps a lot of people from the legislature because people who can afford to live on that salary – are generally folks that are either independently wealthy or they are um, retired, and so they're not working a full-time job on top of that. They don't have small children at home. They are not people who work two jobs. So that low pay automatically limits the kinds of people who can run for office at the state level because it is so prohibitively expensive to live your life on such a small uh, salary, and then on top of that is the additional burden of the time needed to do your job as a legislator, serve your constituents in the way that you want to serve them, and to be on top of all of the issues that they have to deal with. It's a lot of work. It's so much work, and it's something that it's an expectation that we have that people should just be able to do this because. They're good people who want to represent their um, their communities, and yes, that's true, but I think it is unrealistic for us as taxpayers to expect our neighbors to do this work for them, for us, at like poverty-level wages or less. I just think it's a very um, big disconnect that needs to be solved, and I believe there's at least two bills starting to be circulated in the State House right now. One came from Senator Ruth Hardy, the chair of the Government Operations Committee, and one has come from, I believe, um, Representative Emma Mulvaney Stanek in the House, tackling the issues of pay, health care, and, and exploring how the work-life balance can be better achieved with well, legislators. We're going to continue that, among other issues, with uh, you on the other side of this break. Kevin Ellis, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. 
Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV Live Radio. And our guests are Brenda Churchill, the member of the select board from Bakersfield, beautiful downtown Bakersfield, who's running for re-election, is a graduate of the Emerge Vermont training programs, and Elaine Haney, the executive director. We take your calls at 2441777. You can be on the line with Brenda and Elaine. Elaine, I want to ask the most provocative question I can, and actually it's for both of you. I, I it, And it's probably wrong coming from me, the old white male, but it seems no accident to me that the two well, call it three major issues that the Vermont legislature is attacking, attacking this year are childcare, paid family and medical leave, and housing. Uh, and I have to wonder whether those issues would be attacked with such gusto uh, if men were in charge. <laughs> That's a great question, Kevin. I think those problems would have come to the doorstep of the legislature regardless. Yep. Um, And I think gusto is one good way to frame it, that, um, yes, it is an essential, essential situation that they're dealing with with these topics. Um, I wouldn't say that they wouldn't get dealt with if if there were more men in the legislature, but I think they would be dealt with fairly differently. (laughs) <laughs> and so I think women bring will be the women that are there now are bringing a lot of lived experience with them. They are bringing new creative solutions and they are bringing a a much deeper willingness to collaborate and problem solve together. And so I think that those problems would have still been there, yep. but they're going to be solved maybe a little differently than they would have otherwise. But the first, the can, first two go hand in hand. When you're talking about uh, the child care crisis and FMLA, um, I don't see you being able to separate one without the other. And with respect mm-hmm. to the uh, women uh, uh, within the legislature driving these issues, uh, it was pointed out to me quite a while ago that those are also the barricades for women to get into the legislature, uh, is mm-hmm. the ability for uh, proper and good child care as well as FMLA uh, taking care of relatives and, and uh, folks who are in need. So these things are, are kind of core to not only um, emerge, but, but just women in general. Well, That's right. That's what these folks have been campaigning on. Yeah, and, there, and as I've said many times before, uh, as a broken record, there is a scene in your founder, Madeline Cunin's first book, after she left the governor's office, and I can't remember the title, in which she describes uh, leaving her home in Burlington uh, to go serve in the House, where she was the House Appropriations Committee chair at one point, um, and her children tugging at her, begging her not to go, and not to leave them. And she, right in there, in that moment when they're, you know, hanging on her skirt, encapsulates the the pressure and the tension that women still face today in serving in these positions. 
It's true, but women's experience that going out to work too. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's an experience that all women have who are moms who have kids who don't want them to leave the house. And, you know, that's a natural thing. And so having childcare that people can depend upon that's safe and reliable and that you, you can go to work no matter what your job is, is really an extremely important goal. And it's something that we need to have in order to make our society work better. So, um, it, it is definitely a problem that women are well equipped to solve. Now, I'm going to put on my Mayberry RFD hat the way I did in the previous hour and say, back in the good old days, Elaine and Brenda, we didn't have these problems because one of the spouses, the woman, was staying home. And life was better back then, Elaine. <laughs> Here's the thing. Our society has gotten to the point where no one can afford to have one spouse stay home, whether it's the husband or the wife. Right. Child care is not an issue that's dependent on freeing women from the house. It is a situation that is dire because employers are not getting workers who are able to come to work because they have to stay home because their child care fell through. I mean, this is so much bigger than um, the idea of women not wanting to stay home in the house, which is a really antiquated, um, you know, like you said, Mayberry kind of thing to say. Uh, it's something that is affecting the entirety of our society in that we can't get enough people coming to work. We can't get high quality childcare. Children are suffering as a result. It's just a mess for everybody. And we really need to solve this problem. But, but, but Brenda, why, why does this fall on women? I, I think those are traditional roles. And, and in Mayberry, we had Aunt B. I don't remember her working other than trying to keep Andy and Opie fed. Right. Um, what we have <laughs> is a very much a societal shift where we're looking at a paradigm that uh, is unprecedented. Most women work now uh, and provide, uh, if not a, a base income for the family, a substantial part of the family, but also child care never went away. It, it always had to be there, and it's a common denominator. And guys just didn't share in that, and now um, you know we're looking at a, a whole different model that says, hey, everybody's everybody's got to be part of this. And, and even the businesses and the the nature of uh, benefits from people, we've got to have the ability to take care of our kids. Um, okay, here's another provocative one. Why are women more liberal and democratic? Uh, why aren't they Republicans? Well, some are. Yeah. Yeah, some are. We have some are. Uh, women Republican candidates for president. We have women who serve in the legislature that are Republican. I think that when you look at the dominant thought processes that um, bring women to the legislature and keep women home, these are very similar things. Um, they want to protect and provide. Uh, and I think the legislature is just a good place to express that. Why they fall democratic, I have to think it's because we support those ideas and ideals uh, more, than, more than the Republicans. You just said something really provocative uh, that women – did you say protect and provide? Yeah. Yeah. That's – I'm not sure I've heard that before. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, a, a quality that's being brought to the legislature in major quantities because of Emerge. Um, mm. So 
I, I just, you know, I don't think that this issue has been written about or talked enough, uh, as much about um, as it should be, which is the changing culture in the legislature and select boards and school boards, for that matter, uh, because of Emerge. Um, you, how do you feel that impact, Elaine? Other than the forty-five, other than the numbers themselves. Well, I think um, it does help to change the tone at meetings in terms of being willing to be more collaborative. Um, it's an effort that every local office holder tries to work on. Um, you know, Brenda shared her opinion on on how the way public meetings are being held and the way um, you know social media has impacted the way people relate to public officials and such. I hear about it more in an aggregated way because I talk to so many different alums from Emerge Vermont and that situation is difficult on the ground. Those kinds of, um, the kinds of public behavior that has been described, um, there was an editorial recently about it. It's really there. And so I think that having more women at the table on local boards will help improve that of the situation in terms of civility because women are very focused on having respectful conversations. Um, but it's difficult at the same time to do that because women are often treated with a lot of disrespect because they are women. Being at, you know, sitting in positions of leadership um, doesn't sit well with some people, and so they face a lot more incivility on the campaign trail and as elected officials um, just because of their gender. Um, but And that's a little bit of a sidebar. What you were asking me was how this impacts um, it, local office in general. You know, we have 22 um, trainees and alums on the town meeting day ballot this year. We had 10 last year, so it's more than double. So I think um, more women are stepping up to run for local office because they're realizing that their communities are, um, you know, they need to step up and, and provide more leadership at the community level. And some of them will graduate, so to speak, and decide to run for higher office. And that is a fabulous thing. Uh, UVM Center for Research on Vermont did a study about two years ago that said about a third of select board members are women. And that is not representative of the percentage of women in the state in general. And it needs to change because the people who serve on the select board are often the people who end up being in the pipeline for leadership at the state level. And so increasing that representation is what we're all about because it means women are at the table participating in the decision-making about the things that impact their families' daily lives. Brenda, give us one Bakersfield highlight. Okay. Um, one of the things that I, I have pointed out to people is that we have uh, uh, one of the most premier uh, goat uh, farms in Bakersfield, Doe's Leap. That's true. Which is on Route 36 and has been... Uh, a wonderful community hub in hosting concerts and food uh, during the summer and providing uh, wonderful um, sausages and cheeses. Uh, it's a great spot to stop. Uh, Emerge Vermont, Elaine, is offering a free online forum featuring 14 candidates that will be held Wednesday, February 22nd at 6.30 p.m., uh, and the host will be Secretary of State Sarah Copeland Hansis, an Emerge alum, and Representative Mike McCarthy, Chair of the House Government, Government Operations Committee. Tell us about what's going to happen there. 
Yeah, this is our second annual local candidate spotlight. And we're really excited to have so many candidates from all over Vermont, from Bakersfield to Brattleboro. And they will be appearing to deliver their stump speeches so that we can all learn about the women who are running for office locally up and down the state. And um, Secretary Copeland has us is um, a huge proponent of civic participation. And as you said, she is an Emerge alum. And so she will be speaking about the importance of local government and people stepping up to serve in their communities. And Rep. Mike McCarthy, who is the chair of House Government Operations, will also be speaking about that. He's a former city councilor for the city of St. Albans. And the connections between local government and state government. So we're looking for a really um, interesting and fun opportunity for folks to come online and meet these candidates and hear from some of our wonderful um, statewide officials about the importance of local office. So it's free on Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. and you can sign up to get the Zoom link uh, by going to EmergeVT.org. And this is a Zoom uh, event? It is a Zoom event. Okay. All right, great. So uh, you would sign up to attend this if you were interested in running, if you're interested in Emerge, and if you want to see these candidates and their stump speeches. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, not to mention, it gives these candidates practice at actually doing the thing, right? That's right. Stepping up and giving your stump speech to strangers, it's an important skill, and we are thrilled to offer it to them as this platform. And then they can share it out in their communities that they participated in this event and their constituents and potential constituents can see them in action. So it's a great opportunity in both directions to listen to the candidates and for the candidates to connect with voters. Brenda Churchill, what is it like to be an incumbent versus I can imagine that women feel sometimes that they're constantly in the challenger position. That's not the case with you. It's not the case with Speaker Kowinski and so many others now who are sometimes longtime incumbents, uh, and they are, they wield power and leverage. They're not banging on the door from the outside. What's it like to be on the inside versus the outside? Thanks, uh, Kevin. That's actually a great question. I, I want to, I want to do a little bit of uh, quick history. I lost the Franklin uh, Six to an incumbent, so I, I have the, the sting of that fresh uh, from the November elections. But with regard to a local uh, incumbent, um, there are a lot of things at play here. One is that there's a lot of folks who have been here a long time, um, and I may be a fresh face, but if I didn't do what I was supposed to do or what I said I would do, I don't think I'm going to have much shelf life uh, with regard to incumbency. I don't think on a local race it's as it's as much uh, importance as it is uh, just making sure people are aware that I did what I said I would do, what I what I thought uh, was important to the folks that I talked to uh, prior to my first uh, first round of of uh, select board. That's so fascinating. You know, in 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 my political consulting world, there's an old saying that the the guy that that is now. Um, I'd love you to comment on this, but we used to say it back in the '90s, which is the guy with the backhoe and sits on the on the on the select board generally runs the town. <laughs> that's uh, that's an interesting thing because I've I've uh, actually 
we'll go a step further and I like say the road crew yeah. uh, actually does does that uh, in, in switching the backhoe to the to the grader for the roads. I think uh, uh, people are interested in what's local, and that can't, can't get more local than a than a dirt road. Um, but 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 the but the difference between the '90s and now, Brenda, is that you're now the boss of the road crew. Well, I, I'd like to think we've managed that collectively <laughs> yeah. in the select board. We're all we all wear that boss hat, if you will. Um, I've been uh, grateful to help uh, them expand their wages and get their uh, benefits in line because we can't afford to lose one of those guys to uh, another locality that wants to pay more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, it, I'm, Elaine, I'm trying to get Brenda to get in political trouble here by uh, putting her as the boss of the road crew, but you get my point. She's being diplomatic, but but uh, we've come a long way when uh, when women are uh, are overseeing the road crew budget and the schedule and the emergency calls and when they get the call in the middle of the night, uh, et cetera. That's a big change. We do get those calls, and uh, uh, quite frequently uh, it revolves around a, a very hotbed subject, which is uh, ATVs and four-wheelers. Oh, my gosh, mm. yes. <laughs> well, Brenda definitely says an important word there, which was collaborate, because, you know, I've been on the select board and village trustees. I've been a chair of the select board before, and, and it's a team effort, and, and select board members – are elected and they're at the top of the food chain in terms of responsibility of a municipality, but it's the staff that runs the municipality and they are invaluable and it's, it's the local government's job to keep those employees, um, doing their best as they always do and making sure that they're being paid well and their benefits are okay and letting them do their work because they are great at it. And so it's, I, I look at select boards as more of stewards of the community who are and stewards of the taxpayers money whereas it's a collaboration to make the town run efficiently well let's say this one more time a free online forum uh, with emerge candidates giving their stump speeches february 22nd 6:30 p.m. local candidate spotlight you can go to emergevermont.org and sign up. It's free, and you get to see these people giving their stump speeches, and you get to learn about what it takes to run for office and whether you could be a student at one of the many Emerge programs. Elaine Haney and Brenda Churchill, you're so glad to join, so grateful to both of you for joining us. Thank you so much, Kevin. Always a pleasure to come visit you at WDEV. <laughs> okay. Brenda, good luck. <laughs> Yeah, I do have to say, you did mention your name a few times. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we respond to criticism. You betcha. Thanks, Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> that is our show for today. Uh, we, we can't leave without talking about that really incredibly boring Super Bowl because Tom Brady wasn't in the Super Bowl. Okay? I know he signed a gazillion dollar contract with Fox, uh, I remain to be convinced that Brady will be any good as a commentator on Fox. I do think they're going to uh, deploy him in different ways. I don't think he's just going to be a color commentator on football broadcasts. I think they're going to put him in the studio. I think they'll put him out in the field interviewing all of his buddies 
you know, that he played against. Uh, nobody better to interview Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, than Tom Brady. And they can talk about uh, all the, the X's and O's that go into the program. Uh, anyway, no Super Bowl is good without Tom Brady. That's me, the homer, talking. Uh, you can complain to Brady Farkas about all this. Uh, that's our show for today. You can email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. If you want to be a guest on the show or send us a suggestion for a topic or criticize me, drop us a line. The live show becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time at wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button and please like us and recommend us to others. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Conflict of Interest. I'm on Twitter, at Ellis52K. I know that's crazy, but it was back when I was 52 years old. I write about a lot of this stuff on the blog and talk about it on Twitter. I'll be back Friday with a new round of guests and all sorts of new subjects to talk about. Uh, I'm glad we did the mental health uh, thing today with Mark Redman. That really worked out well. Uh, as always, we talk politics in Vermont and the nation. Uh, we talk about my dooryard, and um, we'll take it all up again on Friday. Our show is directed, produced, engineered by the master, Danny McGivrigan. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here on Friday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WD. E.V.